you guys know that in modern business or modern companies, modern companies will have a mission statement, you know, just like a guiding goal or principle or desire. And so I, I looked up a few of them. I wanted to read them to you guys just so you guys could hear and kind of get an, an idea in your mind. Coca-Cola says this as their mission statement. Their mission statement is to refresh the world, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness, and to create value and make a difference. All right, you ever had a Coke and had all that happen to you? <laughs> you know, but that's their mission. Google, this is their mission statement, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. That's their mission. Organize the world's information, make it universally accessible and useful. Apple, on the other end of the spectrum, they're hard to find their mission statement, but Steve Jobs in 1980, he said this. He said, our mission is to make a contribution to the world by making tools for the mind that advance humankind. All right, so the next time, like, you're with your friend, and your friend's like, hey, stop looking at your phone. Look at me. Let's hang out. Just tell them, I am using a tool that is advancing humankind right now. That's what's happening. All right? And then I was just curious, so I looked up the um, mission statement for the waste management company. I was just curious. What could their mission be? And here it is. To maximize resource value. And while minimizing and even eliminating environmental impact so that both our economy and our environment can thrive. It sounds so clean and nice. You know, like, oh, I want to work for that company. Maximize resource value. All right, so, you know, those are just some mission statements that are out there for various companies. Did you know that the Christian life has a mission statement? We actually read it this morning inside of Romans 12, 1 through 2. It's not all of Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's just a part of it. It's found in verse 1. Look at your Bibles again. He says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The mission statement, the only appropriate mission statement for a Christian in response to the gospel that we've studied up to this point in the book of Romans, the only acceptable mission statement is my body for God's glory. That's the mission statement. My body, our bodies, for God's glory. So this morning, what we're going to do is um, we're going to look at that mission statement. What does that mean, my body for God's glory? And, and then we're going to think about what would motivate me to actually live out that mission statement, my body for God's glory. What, what would motivate me towards that? And then, as I'm sure you've noticed, sometimes it's hard to live that mission out. Yeah, I agree with that, my body for God's glory, but I experience an obstacle. In fact, many obstacles. Paul is going to boil it down to one massive obstacle. And this is going to be a really important part of the teaching this morning, where we're going to look at what that obstacle is that is in our way from carrying out this mission that God has given to us to be our bodies for God's glory. And then we're going to see God's help to overcome that obstacle. And then finally, where God, what it looks like when we actually are able to live a life uh, as a living sacrifice uh, unto God. Now, I should say, 
uh, that this really does introduce a fresh section of the book of Romans. And the reason, part of the reason why it's good for us to slow down at this point and to study this mission statement is because, you know, like if you, you know, in any company, you look at a mission statement, afterwards you're kind of wondering, but what do they do? And how, how does it actually play it out? Some companies even will say, and we have a culture code that also describes just the way that we do things. And that's what Paul's going to do in Romans 12 all the way to the end of the book. He's going to explain to us, this is what the Christian life looks like. This is how a Christian lives their life, their bodies for God's glory. This is what it would actually look like for them to live uh, that out. So this is kind of setting the tone, so to speak, for everything Paul is going to say to us uh, later in uh, this letter. And by the way, you guys probably noticed this already, if you're Bible people at all, you've noticed that this seems to be the pattern of the New Testament letters. The front half of the letter is filled with doctrine, theology, truth, the gospel, and the last half is a response to that doctrine, truth, theology, and gospel. Ephesians is like this. Galatians is like this. Colossians is like this. Many of the letters that Paul wrote are like that. He wants to tell us the truth and then how to respond uh, to that truth. And he's given us now 11 chapters of truth that we came from darkness. God saw us in our darkness and rescued us from that depravity, our darkness, through the power of the gospel, a righteousness apart from the works or the keeping of the law. I could not do anything to get right in God's sight. There was nothing I could do, but that God had to save me. But that when he did, and I believed in that gospel message, he transferred me from Adam into Christ, death into life, darkness into light. He did all of that totally and completely. And so much so that we then sing this beautiful song that if God is for me, who can be against me? And there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. So even if I never lived as a living sacrifice unto God, I have a strong and beautiful position in Christ Jesus. But how does God want me to respond? to that glorious gospel. That's where we're going uh, here this morning. So let's think about this mission that God has for us, the goal, so to speak. Let's read it again together there in verse one. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to, here's the mission, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now what we have to do at this point is we have to get in our minds, what does Paul mean by the body. What does Paul mean by the body? Present your body. Because if I'm going to present something, I need to know what is it that he thinks I'm to be presenting. In the Greek thought of Paul's day, the body was so often a negative element. Your soul was good, your inner man was good, but your body in their mind was like a prison that the true you was, in, was entrapped in. But that's not the way that Paul or the Bible speaks about the body. Paul would think about the body as your physical being, but beyond that. Also, your spirit and your soul and your mind and your heart. In other words, the body is your whole person. Every single part of you, your emotions, your intellect, your wisdom, your study, 
all of that, your body, your physical being, your body parts, all of that in Paul's mind is what he means when he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. In other words, this is God's way of saying, I've given everything to you. I, get, I did not hold anything back from you, and I want you to give me all of yourself. Every part of you, I want you to give to me as a living sacrifice. Now, we have to recognize something right now. We have to recognize that this, even this being possible, is because of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. When we studied Romans 1 through 3, uh, those were depressing weeks. I don't know if you remember it back at the beginning of this year, but those first few chapters, you know, we started out, we took a couple of weeks to get through the first 17 verses. We had a little introductory time, and then we spent some time just studying the theme statement of the whole book, Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to all who believe the Jew first and also the Greek. And so we celebrated that. And then we got to verse 18, and I was like, hey, this is really the beginning of the letter. Everything else has been introduction. And we're like, okay, sweet, the beginning of the letter, this is going to be great. And then Paul just from his pen, from his mouth flows, for the wrath of God has been revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. And it was just like a, you know, oh man, there it is. You know, we got this great letter. It's going to be beautiful. But before you know the incredible good news, you got to know the bad news. And for three chapters, Paul described how dark the heart of man has become through sin. So dark that he said in Romans 3, 9 through 20, he described, and the term we use for it is depravity. And the words that he used is he said, we are under sin. It's not, we're not over it. We don't even decide to do it in one sense. We are just in it. We are under it. We are, we are underneath it, suppressed by it. We are under sin. And in that, he quoted a bunch of verses from the Old Testament. And in those verses, he said, it's affected our mouths. Sin has affected our eyes. Sin has affected our ears and our hands, and our feet. In other words, he opened this letter by saying, the bad news, before you hear the good news, is this. Sin has run rampant inside of mankind, and it has influenced every part of our bodies. So now, here comes Paul saying in chapter 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, what he, when he's saying that, He's not saying, you know, because you are depraved, so stop acting depraved. Uh, he's not saying that. What he's saying is, when the gospel gets inside your heart, when you become a believer, when you are born again, what you could never do before because you were so lost and under sin, you can now do by the power of God working inside of you. He's remade you. He's rebirthed you. There's something new that can happen inside of you. Paul would have never said to the Romans 1 through 3 crowd, he would have never said, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It was impossible for us in that depraved state. But it's now possible because of our belief in the gospel message. 
All right? Hey, can I get an amen this morning? You guys are just staring at me. I'm preaching a little bit, and I, I'm, let's have some reciprocal stuff happening. Okay, so that's where he's going, okay? So we, we have to recognize that. All right, so what does it mean then to give my body as a, as a living uh, sacrifice? Paul had to modify this. He had to make sure that he declared it's a living sacrifice because if he had just said sacrifice, you know, he's a rabbi. He came from a Jewish background. He had memorized perhaps even the entire Old Testament. So this guy knew the Bible, and he, you know, the, the idea of sacrifice in the Old Testament economy was uh, death. <laughs> you know, a sacrifice that's given to God, you got an animal. It comes to the temple or the tabernacle. It's alive when it's brought by the worshiper. But then the priests would slay the animal and take its body and pour out its blood and put the uh, animal on the altar as a sacrifice to God. Without the, re- without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins was part of the message that would be communicated to the worshiper as that animal shed its blood. But... In that concept, the sacrifice is a dead sacrifice. Paul here says, you're actually not going to die. You're a living sacrifice. The thing about living sacrifices is that we have a tendency to wiggle off the altar and kind of go like, well, you know, I'm a sacrifice, but now I don't like this, and so I'm going to pull myself off uh, of the altar. And so he's saying here, no, you're, you're conscious. You are making a decision. There, there's, a, there's, a, a, there's volition. There is your will that is involved in giving yourself as a sacrifice that is, that is alive, but is given over entirely to God. Nothing is held back. It's all given to him. And this, of course, is different from the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the sacrifice, like I said, would come to the altar alive and then leave the altar dead. The opposite is true for us as believers. We came to the cross dead, and now as we give our lives to him, we depart alive. So he's saying you're to give yourself completely uh, to God. This is the idea of declaring all of yourself, your whole man, as dedicated to him, given over to him. No part of you that is held back from him. Now we all recognize how hard this is, don't we? We recognize that there are parts of our lives and our hearts that we want to keep back from the Lord. It's one thing to say it. It's one thing to stand up at a conference or a rally or a church service or something like that and to say in a moment of conviction, I give you my whole life, but it's, it's difficult because there are portions of our lives that are very hard for us to give over to God. We prefer the buffet approach naturally when it comes to God. You know, you go into a buffet restaurant. I haven't been to one for years, but I remember going to these. For some reason, they were like a big thing in the 80s when I grew up, you know, the buffet. And, you know, you pay the set fee and you go in. I always remember, you know, just like wanting to, you know, as I'm picking through the different things in the buffet, I wanted to know like what's the bare minimum amount of green things that I have to eat in order to get to the ice cream machine. You know, like at the end, there was always that ice cream machine. But that's so often the kind of approach that we want to have with 
the Lord. Lord, I want to take this, and I want to take that. I want this, or I want that. Not realizing that back in that kitchen is a master chef who knows what he's doing. And it's far wiser for us to say, whatever he wants me to eat, I will eat. Whatever he wants to give me, I will partake of. That's the idea of giving your life, living, uh, giving yourself as a living sacrifice to God, is that there is no longer any decision on my part. I just give my whole man to God. A man named Philip Brooks said it this way. He said, it does not take great men to do great things. It only takes consecrated men. People who are willing to say, I give myself completely to God. All right, so that's kind of the idea. This is the goal. I want to give everything that I am to God. We learned in Romans 10 that the heart believes, the mouth confesses, but God says, but I also want your body. All right, so we say that's the goal. That's where I want to go. All right, so here's our question then. What's the motivation for that? What's the motivation for that? Why, why would I want to do that? Why, why would I want to give my whole life completely to God? Well, notice the way Paul writes it in verse 1. Uh, let's look at a few words that he says there in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you. Appeal, the word appeal. He says, by the mercies of God. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, and then at the end of the verse, he says, which is your spiritual worship. All of those phrases, appeal, therefore, mercies of God, spiritual worship, all of them are designed to help us as Christians understand that the only logical way forward, once you've received the gospel message, the cross of Christ, the only logical way forward is this. This is all response. Because if God has done all of this for us, then as a response, the therefore, that's what he says, I appeal to you therefore, I've just written to you all these beautiful things that God has done for you. He's withheld nothing from you. If that's true, if that therefore is true, Paul is pleading with us, he's begging us, he's saying, I'm appealing to you. And by the way, that's the language of grace, not law. He's saying this is a choice that you have. God will not force you into this kind of life, but I appeal to you based on everything I've written. And he says, by the mercies of God. Some of your Bibles say, by the compassions of God. You say, where are the compassions of God? Romans 1 through 11. The grace of God, the compassion of God, the love of God, the gospel shows us God's love. Like I said, it began with the wrath of God has appeared, but the wrath was swallowed up by God's love. Okay, he, he, the wrath was there against sin, but his love drove him to give his son. All right, so all of that, it, it causes us to say, I've thought about it. I've considered this incredible gospel. I've considered what God has done for me. I've received that appeal. I've thought about the mercies of God, the love of God, and I have concluded this is my and the ESV says it, spiritual worship, but I'm sure many of your Bibles say at the end of verse one there, my reasonable service. And that's a good way of describing that phrase because the word spiritual in the ESV or reasonable in some of your Bibles is a Greek word that we get our word logic from. In other words, Paul is saying this is the logical outcome. When you just think about what God has done for you, 
you think about His amazing grace, when you think about this, the only logical flow from that is to say, I want to give everything to Him. This is why a person who's really understood the gospel, when, when, they, when they've done this and they've begun the process of laying down their lives as a living sacrifice to God, when somebody comes up to that person and says, what you're doing is amazing. They're protected in so many ways from ugly, sinful pride because in their heart they say, I wish I could do more. For all that God has done for me, it would only be logical that I could give more of myself to God for what he has given to me. This is Paul in his mind. Paul, as he did everything that he did on the earth, to him it was just a logical conclusion that flowed from all that God had done for him. So what is Paul's motivation? What is our motivation for presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice? Well, it's simply the love of God, the mercies of God, the gospel that has been given to us. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. He said, the love of Christ controls us. He was just so wholly consumed by the love of Jesus that he felt like it was the controlling factor in his life. It's what drove him to give his life as a living sacrifice. When he was you know, on a ship out in the middle of the Mediterranean and the waves were beating against that ship and everybody on that ship is fearing for their life. Paul, what made him able to pray for everyone on the boat, preach to everyone on the boat, love everyone on the boat, what, what made him able to do that? It was the love of Christ. It compelled him. It controlled him. It was just reasonable to him. Jesus had laid down his life for Paul, and so Paul would lay down his life for God and for others. It had just gotten inside of him. This is part of the reason why I'm constantly praying for myself and for you, for us as a body of believers, the prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, that we would know the length and width and depth and height of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Because when we get that, when we see that, incredible things happen because we respond by saying, I'm going to give my life as a living sacrifice uh, to God in response to all he has done for me. Okay, so that takes us this far. You might even feel a little bit bad at this point because you're like, whoa, that sounds so easy. You know, give my whole man to God, that sounds tough, but... When you put it that way, a response to the gospel, well, the gospel's amazing. What Jesus has given me is amazing. So that's a slam dunk. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give my whole life completely to God. I'm going to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. But have you ever discovered it's not that easy? We have all these things that we want and desire that kind of get in the way of being able to give ourselves completely to God, maybe partially, maybe momentarily, but it's really hard for us to go all the way with this, and it really seems like something that we're growing in. What is the obstacle? Now, at this point, we might say a lot of different things. Well, I have fleshly desires, uh, or I live in a broken world, uh, or my environment, the condition, the situation that I'm in, uh, my upbringing, uh, different things like that, stuff that I was taught, sin that was committed against me. We might hold out a lot of different things, but Paul holds out 
one big thing. And I really want you to think about this with me. It's in verse 2. Let's read it together. He says there, here's the obstacle. Do not be conformed to this world. The thing that's coming against us, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, is the world. The question that we have to ask, though, is, what is that? What is the world? Paul here doesn't use the Greek word that he would have used if he was simply just describing the earth or the things that we see, the cosmos. He doesn't use that word, and that would be a silly idea anyways, right? You know, watch out, don't be conformed to the planet. Uh, You know, planet earth is really big and round, and so don't be like planet earth. Like, that would be a weird exhortation. That just doesn't work. That's never been a temptation for, I mean, I've eaten a lot of ice cream in my time, but I've never become like the planet earth, right? That's, That's not what he's saying. It also doesn't mean that we're not to be people who are on the earth. We can't help that. We're born. We live. We have a heartbeat. So we're human beings. We are citizens of this planet. That's not, that's not what he's saying. Don't, don't be another citizen on the face of the earth. He's also, and I think this is important to understand, I don't think he's just saying, don't be conformed to the culture or the society that you live in. If that were the case, we'd all be in really big trouble this morning. Because it's not like we came to Christ and after becoming Christians, uh, we read in the Bible like, and now that we're Christians, here's like a new store that we're all supposed to shop at and buy our clothes at because we're Christians. And you know, you look this way and you wear like, I don't know what it would be. I'm trying to imagine some kind of funky outfit or something, but to where now you just uh, walk around and you're big, like, I, I don't even want to go there. But I'm just like thinking of just some like crazy outfit that's like, there's the Christian thing. No, we dress like other people who don't know the Lord. It's a cultural thing that's fine and good. We accept and embrace the art so often of the culture and the music so often of the culture as long as it doesn't bring us into sin it's something that we can partake of and enjoy you have your favorite restaurants and foods that you eat so he's not saying hey you know that stuff that's out there in the culture you've got to watch out for that i mean there are parts of course that we do but there are many parts that we either redeem or just receive straight up that we accept so he's not saying that He's also, and i got to say this, in case you've got a little of that old legalism still stuck in you, he's not setting this super low bar. You know, like, hey, watch out that you don't, you know, you don't drink and you don't do this and you don't do that and there's just a handful of things that Christians don't do anymore. And once you get that, you're solid gold. You've given yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Many Christians have deluded themselves with that kind of idea. As long as I don't do my list of five things that I'm already pretty good at not doing, as long as I don't do those five things, then I'm solid and I've not conformed myself to this world. Well, the word world is bigger than that. Some of you probably even saw in the margin of your Bible the word age. It's a word that we get uh, the, the eons from. It's, it's, it's the idea of, it's, it's the age that we're in. 
What does that mean? Well, I'll I'll give you a simple definition of what that means, but before I do, let me give you a really complex definition of what that means. This comes from Trench's Synonyms of the New Testament. He writes it like this. Here's what the world is, or the age, the spirit of the age is. It is that floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations, at any time, current in the world, which it may be impossible to seize and accurately define, but which constitute a most real and effective power, being the moral or immoral atmosphere which at every moment our lives we inhale, again inevitably to exhale. In other words, he's saying the world, the age, we're swimming in it. We are swimming in it. There are things that you think and that I think that have nothing to do with God and his word. He did not put those thoughts in there. He did not put those beliefs in there, those convictions in there. But we believe them and we think them because of the age that we're in. That's what he's saying. This last summer when we went up to Lake Tahoe, before we went, I bought my daughters, I bought them snorkels. And... Uh, they had said, you know, yeah, we'd like to, when we get up there, we'd like to be able to swim, but then also, you know, kind of like with uh, fins, we'd be able to go out there and just kind of check things out and just kind of swim in that way. So I got them these snorkels. And when we were out there, you know, it's like, especially when you're super little, you don't really totally understand like the whole concept, you know, it's like you get that snorkel in there and you just think I can breathe all the time, you know, so I had to like make sure that I did my fatherly duty and gave some training sessions on how to appropriately use a snorkel because I remember being a kid and having that snorkel in and just going under the water and thinking, oh, I can breathe real good right now, right? And taking a huge breath and it doesn't work all that well. So, you know, we went out there and I was giving little training sessions and everything, especially to my youngest, you know, and showing her like, yeah, you know, as you're swimming around, you're on top of the water, your snorkel is sticking out of the water. You're sucking in the, the air, the oxygen from above the water. It's coming into your mouth. But, and I would show her, you can hold your breath. Take a breath, hold your breath, go under the water. And then you can come back up. And if you exhale really quickly, you can blow all the water that's come into your snorkel. You can blow it out and you can continue on, you know, on your way. And so, you know, learning how to do it. That's, in a sense, what Paul is saying the Christian life is to be like. We are swimming in this culture. We are swimming in this age. There are thoughts and perspectives, and you have to understand that you are being discipled more aggressively, more completely, and more totally by this age than you are by God. This culture is constant. I mean, God is constant, and his word is constant, but I'm just saying you're exposed constantly to the discipleship material of this age. And so Paul is giving a warning and saying, we must watch out for this age. It is wanting to conform us. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 2. He said, we used to follow the course of this world. We were just sucked along with it. And I'm sure you've noticed that. You've noticed maybe popular opinions that have come upon a culture that it just seems like because the flow began to go in that direction, people not even thinking or coming to a logical conclusion, they just went after that flow and began to be pulled into it. 
All right, so that, those are the more complex ways to think about the spirit of the age or what the age is. What's a simple way to think about it? Because maybe as you've looked around at the world, you've probably noticed, like, people are under the spirit of the age, but that doesn't mean everybody in the spirit of the age gets along. Have you noticed that? I mean, you have people from all over the world that are angry at each other, at war with each other, hating each other, yet they're all under the same system, the spirit of the age. So how can you all be under the same set of rules, the same spirit, the same age, you're all in the same thing, yet at war with each other? And here's why. The spirit of the age is all about the self. That's really the simplest way to describe it. The spirit of the world, the age itself, is all about the self. Self-gratification, self-fulfillment, self-longing, self-defense. And Jesus came along preaching to us and saying, do you want to find your life? He who wants to find his life must lose his life. But he who seeks to find his, or save his life will not find it. He'll actually lose it. That's what the spirit of the age, it is a self-focus that consumes a person's life. Self-gratification regardless of the cost. And this is obvious, right? I mean, you look out and it's really natural to us to say, if you don't like me, I don't like you. If you're indifferent to me, then I'm indifferent to you. And if you love me, well, I really respect your good taste, and I will love you in return. There's a real, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of perspective. Jesus comes along, though, and he explodes that whole thing. One of the things that we're going to, dis to discover in Romans 12 through 14 is that Paul is going to parrot Jesus over and over and over again. Jesus would say things like, bless those who persecute you. And Paul would parrot that same concept. Jesus would say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And Paul would parrot that concept. Jesus would talk about a selflessness that is others-focused. Take your gifts, your talents, your abilities, and use them for others. And Paul would parrot that idea. But the spirit of the age says, what are my rights? What are my gifts? What's going to help me? What's going to better my existence? That is a huge part of what the spirit of the age is all about. And it's so hard not to get caught up in that. Because it's just the flow of mankind. But the believer, like Daniel in Babylon, is called to resist. Called to resist. Okay, so, if that's the obstacle, let's close by looking at Last two other questions. Here's a question. Is there anything that can help me avoid being conformed to the world? You know, if that's what I'm to do, don't be conformed to this age. Is there any, do I have any hope? I'm swimming in it. So how can I avoid being conformed to this world? Let's look at the answer in verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So we can't be conformed to the world. That's the danger, and that's what we so often and easily slip into. But what I need to do is to be transformed. 
Now that sounds great, but how does transformation come? Well, he said it right there. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Renewal of your mind. In other words, my mind, your mind, it needs to be changed. It needs to be altered. It needs to be renewed. And of course, what we're talking about here is we're talking about ditching the thoughts of the age, the thoughts of the world, and embracing the thoughts of God, the thoughts of the Word of God. In other words, this is a shift from becoming self-centered to God and others-centered. Self-centered to Christ-centered. And this takes total mind renewal because you just can't decide to do it. Your mind must be changed and transformed. And this comes by the Word of God. Letting the Word of God into our minds and into our hearts so that we might think the thoughts and, and rhythms and patterns of God. But again, this is a challenge, isn't it? It's natural to us to base our decisions and our lives off of our feelings. I feel this way. How do I feel about my job? How do I feel about my relationships? How do I feel about my commitments? How do I feel about these things? But the Lord wants to get into our minds and renew those minds so that our feelings are subservient to the thoughts and the mind of God. And this is the blessed life. This is the blessed life. When our minds begin to more and more be in step with God and his word. And I say that to you because, like I said, this week and every week, you and I, we are going to have a lot of messages preached at us. We're going to hear a lot of advertising. We're going to listen to a lot of, you know, streams of people pontificating, podcasts and news and all of that. We're going to have a lot of messages that are pre being preached at us. Your, our own hearts are going to preach many messages to us. And as those messages go forth, it's to our advantage to have that message, those messages brought underneath the message of God's word for our minds to be renewed. It says it this way in, the, in Psalm 1, describing the blessed life. It says, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. All right, now part of this is just going to be what we're going to read over the next few weeks. We're going to read, our minds are going to be renewed as we think about the way the Lord wants us to live. So that's what we're going to be doing the next few weeks. We're just going to be setting our mind, and God is going to be renewing our minds, enabling us to be transformed as he does that work. Okay, so at this point, this is kind of it. We're at this decision process or this decision point. Do I want to, maybe for some of you, like initially, you've never done this. You've maybe received the gospel message. You believed and place your faith in Christ, but you've yet to really give your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then maybe for many others of you, this is like a decision that you've made in your life, but it's kind of like a re-up kind of moment this morning, you know, where we're confronting this verse once again, and you're just thinking, okay, is that really the life that I want to live? And do I, do I really want to climb on that altar as a living sacrifice? Will that be the mission statement of my life, my body for God's glory? Will that be the mission of my life? Now, if you're anything like me, and like so many, probably at this point, there's a little bit of kind of just nervousness about that. We kind of have that idea about God, don't we? Like the second that I say, God, you can have all of me, 
he's going to do something really funky to us. And he's going to make us go someplace really bad or to say, you know, say things that are really hard to say. Like it, Life's going to be miserable if I really, at this point, say, like, God, I'm, I'm all on that altar. No part of me reserved. I give you my life completely. It's, it, you know, something tough's going to happen. We were, I was talking with some friends about that this last week, and they were joking about that as they're making these big decisions to give their lives completely to God. They're just kind of joking about that between themselves as a married couple saying like, you know, we're just kind of saying things like, the last place I would ever want to go is Hawaii, you know, like, you know, just kind of this joke, like, because that's how we think about God, like God's going to hear that and be like, oh, what, Hawaii? Well, I'm sending you there then, you know, or some, something like that, you know. It's just so naturally how we think about God. Like, if I do that, if I, if I live a life that's a living sacrifice, and, 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 and God purges from me the age that is so self-dominant, he starts purging that from my life, and I become God-centered and, and other-centered, and that begins happening in my life, it's going to be a miserable life in existence. That is not so. This is what Paul tells us. He says at the end of verse 2, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The wisdom of the age, the life of this age, is a painful life. It is a life that drains you. To be constantly consumed with the self is a life that does not energize and does not bring joy to give your life more and more to Christ, to get on the altar. It is a life that is filled with the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. You begin discovering the paradox that Jesus communicated. I lost my life and I found it. I gave my life and it came back to me. I let go. And God gave me something more beautiful and powerful and wonderful than what I was holding on to. So Paul is telling us, look, there, there is such great beauty in front of us as we climb on the altar and give our lives completely to God. So for all of us, the question is, will this be our mission statement? Will we say, my body for God's glory? My body for God's glory. That is always the battle in the Christian life.